the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I think it's safe to say that all of us, not just in this room, but all of humanity, mankind, we want to enjoy life. And a lot of times we understand that in our society today, in order to enjoy life, we have to do our best. Now, maybe not the best in the sense that it will take a toll on your personal life or your recreation, but we really want to have our best life now. We want to enjoy life. We want to maximize our full potential. And perhaps that's why when Joel Osteen in 2004 published a book by that name, Your Best Life Now, it quickly shot up to the top of the New York Times bestseller list. In this book, it becomes clear that Olstein's message is not the gospel, or is it in any way Christian, but it's merely a repackaged form of pop psychology that's been around for years, with God's name sprinkled on every page. It's really a self-help book. A self-help book that promotes a healthy self-image, while lying to its readers by telling you that God defines success in the same way the secular world does, with things like fame and fortune, riches, Happiness. He says in his book, as long as you visualize it, God wants you to have it. This is nothing new. People we call prosperity gospel preachers have been preaching this all the time. And they serve as the role models for those who follow them with private jets and multiple mansions and Bentleys and Rolls Royces and whatnot. And they would say the reason they were able to attain those things or rather the reason God gave them those things is because They trusted in God, and they were able to visualize it, and so they got it. And this is the same thing in the book, Your Best Life Now. Believe it or not, I too want you to have your best life now. But unlike Osteen and other prosperity gospel preachers, I want you to have the best kind of life that you can have as God defines it, not as the world not as your felt needs, not as your pocketbook defines it. So it may not mean with money or even self-confidence, but with humility and godliness. But don't take my word for it. Take it from a man inspired by the Holy Spirit who also wants you to have your best life that you can while you're on earth. In other words, to maximize your time on earth and, in fact, this man, Peter, tells us how. Would you turn with me to First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12? First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. He writes, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days, there's the best life, must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those Who do evil. In other words, to have your best life now as a Christian, according to Scripture, is not about what's in it for me or what can I have. It's about what can I do and give for others, even in sacrificing my own wealth and my own self-confidence and my own comfort. This morning and in two weeks, we'll be looking at four truths to embrace to maximize your life on earth. Four truths to embrace to maximize your life on earth. We'll look at the first two this morning. We have our Q&A next week. 
And then on the first Sunday of July, we will finish up this passage. By the way, one of the greatest critiques of that title, Your Best Life Now, is a play on words, is that you, if you are a Christian, will not have your best life now, no matter what you do in pursuit of godliness or riches, because your best life will be with God in eternity. We are taking it this morning of how to have your best life while you are here on earth. And we start with our first truth to embrace, to maximize your life on earth, and that is the consuming character. The consuming character. Let me read for you again verse 8 of 1 Peter 3. He says, In summary, to sum up or finally, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. And with this opening word to sum up or finally, Peter transitions to the end of this section that we've been looking at over the past few weeks. This is a section in which he has been generally talking about the Christian's testimony and impact on the world around us. He specifically does that by addressing very uh, specific relationships within the Christian's life. And in fact, if you have the NAS version of the English Bible in your laps, it might be a little misleading here because it does say to sum up. It's He's not really summarizing all of those uh, relationships specifically regarding testimony and submission, but he's bringing in what is an entirely new but related point. And rather than addressing addressing specific relationships such as in the workplace or in the home, as we have seen over the past few weeks, Peter now gets more general and gives us instruction on all our relationships from as Christians to other Christians and as Christians to non-Christians. And he begins in verse 8 by giving us five general characteristics. These are all adjectives in the Greek. And the context indicates that the emphasis here is our attitude toward other Christians. Though, of course, we don't just... Play house, as it were. We don't just pretend. We don't just do these things externally. They are attitudes and characteristics of the heart, so naturally they will be how we treat unbelievers as well. But as we unpack these, you'll see that Peter is clearly addressing relationships within the larger context of the church, Christian to Christian. We start with this first word, be harmonious. If you have the ESV, it says have unity of mind, which is a very good translation. It literally means same think, to think the same, to be like-minded. And it's an internal unity of attitude of the heart in spiritual things. This doesn't mean we can't use our freedom to enjoy different things. We don't have to all have the same likes and dislikes, tastes and hobbies. We're talking about unity in the church which goes much deeper than whether you like to ride bikes or play video games or if you're a camper or you're a city guy. Because we're talking about, ultimately, our aim and purpose as Christians. And the foundation of this, of course, is our common faith in Jesus Christ. To be clear, it is not enough to say that Jesus is God or Jesus is Savior. Our common faith is Christ And not just believing that Christ exists, or even who He is, but that we agree upon what it is that Christ has taught and expects of us as His followers. And it does not matter when it comes to those beliefs. And I believe this is why a lot of Christians are disagreeing on things now. We must remember That if God has said it, it is true. And if God has said it, it is true. Thus, we must believe it and we must do it. It matters not what society thinks. It matters not what our feelings say. It does not matter if our desires disagree with the Scriptures. It doesn't matter if a man in the White House or a man in the the governor's mansion says you are a fool for believing that. You are a fool for trying to ban this. You are a fool for voting against this. If God has said it, my friends, I believe it and I will do it. Even when my feelings and my desperately wicked and deceitful heart says don't do it. It's not politically correct. It's outdated. 
I believe what the scriptures say. There has to be, as, as Kevin shared from his, his early days when he was growing up, truth is not relative, my friends. There is a truth. There is a God. He defines truth. And it is based on this truth that Peter says be harmonious. And I, I kind of went on that rabbit trail because we cannot say what Peter is saying here is we put aside doctrine and we put aside our beliefs for the sake of unity. That is never promoted in Scripture. In fact, the opposite is true. Just look at the words of Jesus Christ. He didn't say, Jewish leaders, come and I, we, will, we will just accept our differences. I am the way, the truth, and the life. You have your rules and regulations, but let's work together to feed the poor. Let's work together to overthrow this system of the Roman Empire. No, no. He said, what I say is the way, even if it means you're going to crucify me for it. And so unity, you have to understand within the context of the entirety of the New Testament means Peter is saying we must be harmonious. We must have like mindedness and unity of mind that is based on Christ and everything that he has taught us. And when we have this unity. Not just, yes, I believe in God, but unity in doctrine. It fleshes out in a unified commitment to other Christians from the heart. And with this attitude, not only will division be avoided, it is unthinkable. It wouldn't even cross your mind. The greatest enemy, I believe, of harmony is simply selfishness. It's not bad doctrine, it's selfishness. It's the sinful desire to do what we want. Because to pursue harmony, your goal must be to serve God and love others rather than serving your individual and selfish interests. You can't have harmony when you just look to yourself and push everyone to do what you want and to serve your needs. So again, when we talk about being harmonious, having Unity of mind among believers. It is in the heart. It is in the mind. It is in your core beliefs. But it fleshes out in affection and actions for and toward one another. And that's a good reminder too. We cannot just be theologians and Bible thumpers that say this is the way it is. And we go around and our our, our goal is just to slam people who have different doctrines. This is not just about what we believe. It must flesh out in love. It must flesh out in service. That is what God created the church for. Not just to study and know, but to study so that you can practice, so that you can live out. And that's where you will find harmony. He goes on and he says, brothers and sisters in Christ, be sympathetic. Be sympathetic. This means to share the same feelings. It's Romans 12:15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You know in New Testament times, uh, funerals were a big deal. There was a lot of wailing and crying and a lot of times there were instruments. And you know who did most of the wailing and crying? People who didn't even know the deceased. They were hired mourners. This is not what it's talking about. This is not a superficial feeling. This is not bite your cheek so you cry when your brother in Christ is crying. What this is talking about is being so committed to others in your life and so loving of them that you literally hurt when they hurt and you are filled with joy when they are filled with joy. Regardless of your circumstances, you may be having the best day ever, but if you love that guy, you're going to weep with them. And you may be mourning the loss of someone, but if you love that guy truly and biblically, not in a weird way where you forget your loved ones, but you rejoice with them as well. Again, it's the idea of focusing on others and not just on ourselves and our own circumstances and saying, I'm sad, you must all be sad. I'm happy, why aren't you happy for me? It is the idea of focusing on other people. 
It is the idea behind the statement that we use here in America. I'm happy for you, but for the Christian, you are truly, from the depths of your soul, happy. If he wasn't there watching you, if he wasn't watching your reaction, if you were with that person, you just found out about it, you would literally just jump in the middle of your room with no one around because you're just so happy. It's not just for show. It's not just for play. And the word that Peter uses has the same root as Hebrews 4.15, which tells us that Jesus is our high priest who can sympathize, who has the same feelings in understanding our weaknesses. And it's not that you need to go around finding things to be happy or sad about, go around prying into people's lives and trying to draw out emotional responses. You know, people people often say, well, you know, I just people, this guy's just not emotional. He's emotional. He just doesn't display his emotions or her emotions the way you may. I know people who who cry a lot and their friends say she's so emotional. And I'm like, you're more emotional than she is. You just don't cry. And so we're talking about not just the externals here, right? We're talking about not things that are are fleeting. Because the underlying idea is that you are so close to other believers that there is a a willingness, at least, if you don't know what's going on, at least there's a, a willingness to share in their joys and experiences. And again, the the sins of pride and selfishness or laziness, which is a form of selfishness, will keep you from having relationships like this. And I think there are two uh, potential dangers that are opposite extremes here when we, when we try to flesh this out practically. On the one, one hand, you don't care about other people. And I think this is, you know, if we kind of just go with the flow these days, that's what's going to happen. Because media today is so pervasive and so instantaneous on our phones and on our laptops and tablets and soon the chip in our head or whatever they're going to do next. That the reality of our world today is that you don't just pick up a newspaper and hear about the tragedy in your, your, the city you live in and maybe a big issue across the country. You're bombarded with everything. Every little instance in every city in America, in every city in Europe, in every city in Asia and so forth. And we can be so bombarded, bombarded with tragedy that we're easily desensitized because how can you care about so many things? But we're talking about other believers and the, the circles of friendship and love that we have around us. On the other hand, on the other extreme, there's another danger. There's a cultural norm to say things that are polite, like, I'm so sorry this is happening to you. Give a hug, send some flowers, and think that this is sympathy when in your heart you couldn't care less. In fact, you can hardly get the words out, I'm so sorry, or congratulations, because you are shocked at how much those flowers cost, or the party you need to get to next. Don't get me wrong, the gesture is nice, it is appropriate, but it has to go further. And when I say further, I mean deeper in your heart. In fact, I believe one of the causes of just being externally just superficial is that you may be overly emotional. Let me explain. When you don't have a handle on your emotions, it's because probably that your emotions are not rooted in truth. And so they're fleeting. Do this next time. You ever watch these like commercials or YouTube videos and, you know, they're, they're real. Like some, some kid gets those special glasses. He's been blind since birth and then he can see for the first time. And it's so emotional. By the end of it, you're just like sobbing. You're hoping your spouse doesn't come into the room because you're just, you're just, you're just a mess. Try this. Mute the dramatic music and watch it again. You see, so often it's just superficial because of because of the music. Uh, look, I'm I'm not a charismatic. I'm non-charismatic. I'm a cessationist, but I have no problem if you are worshiping to lift your hands because you'll you'll do it at a concert. You do it in your car. Lift your hands when we sing. But I don't want you to be driven by the music. I want you to be driven by the words. The truth. 
Because if you're going like this, when the music goes upbeat, but you can't find the energy to do that when we sing a humdrum, boring hymn, but whose words are way more profound, then you're being moved by the instruments, not by the truth. And it's the same thing with our emotions. It's not bad to be emotional, but it's dangerous and deceitful to others and to yourself if your emotions are not rooted in truth. Be sympathetic. Number three, he says, be brotherly or have brotherly love. And we looked at this back in chapter one, verse 22, which says this, since you have in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, brotherly love is that Greek word, Philadelphia, the namesake of the famous city here on the East Coast. And it's different than the unconditional love, the agape love. And a lot of people say, because, I think because of that, that little scene, we won't go to it, between Peter and Jesus, do you agape love me? Yes, I brotherly love you. And they say there's, there's a difference in degree, and that's probably what's coming out in, in that passage. But when it's talking about Christians, you need to understand that we are commanded to have agape love and brotherly Philadelphia love, phileo love for other people. In fact, Jesus even says God loves us with both kinds of love. What's the difference? When we are called to love all people, Christian or non-Christian, including our enemies, it is agape love. It is a volitional. In other words, it is a choice. You choose to love them. It is a it is a love that is unconditional meaning it doesn't matter if they don't want your love. It doesn't matter if they don't love you back. You love them. Brotherly love is different. It has a greater degree of feeling and affection. And it is not a love that you would show all people. It's the kind of love in our society that best friends will show to one another as they seek out each other's happiness. It's been called, to to give you an idea, it's been called soul love. S-O-U-L, love. Soul love and is commonly seen in friendships with people who are like you that have the same interests, same same hobbies, things like that. And in our context, brotherly love is speaking of a love between members of a group and specifically the fellow members of the Christian community is the group we're talking about. Brotherly love for other Christians, those in the church. Romans 1210, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. How? Paul goes on, say, give preference to one another in honor. Respectfully give preference to others. That's brotherly love. You you do that all the time with the people you love the most, right? Your best friend, your siblings, whatever. No, no, no. I really, you know, I'm hungry, but I want you to have the last piece. Right now, you I get a little car sick, but you take the front seat. I mean, those are little petty examples, right? Unless you get really car sick. That's not a petty example, but... You understand what I say? We give preference to other people. And this is what he's calling for in the church. And the idea is that we love one another because we're family. We don't have blood ties, but we love each other as if we do. Or at least theoretically. Some of us don't get along with those we have blood ties with, but you understand, family. There's an intimacy among us. Because of our common faith that cannot be replicated in any other relationship. Because ultimately, this kind of love that the scriptures call for is a kind of love that flows out first and foremost from our love for God and his love for us. Then secondarily, because of that love, we are able and desirous of loving other people in this way. Brotherly love. And even the, even the word, right? Brotherly love tells us that is a love that's most common among family. Fourthly, he says, be kind-hearted. In your Bibles, this may be translated as compassionate or have a tender heart. And this is a Greek word <laughs> that actually originally referred to the, the internal organs. Okay, this is not a metaphor. The literal doctors would use that. It's a bio, your, your guts, your liver, your intestines. 
And you can kind of see where we're going with this, right? It later came to refer to these organs as the center of our feelings and affections. Although this is not biologically true, it's all in literally in the brain, we still use the principle today. For example, when I say love from the heart, you say the chambers? No, you, you understand what I mean based on how this word is used, not only in scripture and in the Greek, but even in our language and I believe in many other languages today. You know, you get, oh man, I, oh, I think I'm in love, I'm getting butterflies. Where? In your stomach, right? You, 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 we still refer to the insides as the, the seat and center of our feelings and affections. And this is expressed, kind-heartedness, in genuine concern for others. That, again, of course, is, is exhibited in actions, right? Actions speak louder than words. I, I think it's almost unnecessary to say this, right? That you love so much, someone so much that you'd actually do something for them. Right, that's they just go hand in hand. You don't say, "Man, I really, I really love this guy, and I know he's hungry." And oh, ten dollar bill. I think I'll go uh, buy some scratchers. Or no, <laughs> right? You're like, "What are you doing?" If you love the guy and he's hungry, and you find a ten dollar bill in your pocket, what do you do? Naturally, you just give it to him or go buy him a meal. We understand this principle. So this is more than just well wishes, kind thoughts. Obviously, again. This can only happen if you're actually paying attention to others and not ignoring them, that you're actually focusing on them and preferring them. Ultimately, this kind of compassion for the for other Christians is rooted again in the compassion that has first been shown to us and is continually shown to us by God. In fact, Paul says this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter four and verse thirty two. He says, be kind to one another, tender hearted. That's the same word. Forgiving each other. Why? Just as God and Christ also has forgiven you. We're just being Christ like. We're just repeating what Christ and God have already done for us. And this can be challenging in our in our overly private society. Right. Where 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 you don't even really know your neighbors, or if you do, you just wave at them, they shut the door, you don't talk to them, you, you, don't, you don't sit on your porch as they do in some other parts of the country and, and just wait for people on a warm summer evening to walk by and you have block parties and things like that. We, we don't really do that here in, in California or, or the Bay Area. And people don't want to open up. And so it can be very difficult, especially... In a day and age when acts of common courtesy are no longer, well, common. When I was serving in Albania, one of our teammates was the son of a a Christian. But his dad, Scott, was a very successful uh, founder of a very successful investment firm in Chicago. I believe one of the largest uh, we jokingly called him the Charles Schwab of Chicago, right? He's been there ringing the bell to open or close the stock market multiple times. And this man, Scott, had a coworker who was a regular contributor on Fox Business on, on television. About 10 years ago, when Americans were worried about our economy, they had this man on TV and said, is our economy really tanking? Should we really be worried? And the man said, no. And he said, let me tell you why. Our company, which is in a suburb of Chicago, is right next to train tracks. He said, my office window faces the train tracks. And these are one of the tracks and where freight trains go by. And whenever a freight train goes by, I stop what I'm doing and I just sit there. And if you've ever been stuck at a light with a freight train, you know it could be a long time. And he says, I just count the freight cars. He said, I just did that the other day. And there are a lot of cars. Those are goods being shipped across America, which is indicative that the economy was strong. And a few months later, proved that he was right. You wouldn't think of that, but it's a very simple, yet effective and practical litmus test of something larger. 
I have a very simple yet practical and effective litmus test on our society's kind-heartedness. Common courtesy. Holding doors open, saying thank you when someone else holds the door open for you. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's because I was overseas for a while. When did that stop? Like They're like, you know, really far away and you're standing there. And they just barge through, no acknowledgement. The traffic wave, remember that? You, you, will, you will stop traffic now so someone can pull into your lane. No wave, no thank you, right? All, we just don't do that stuff anymore. And I really, I'm a firm believer that the small things are indication of a problem in the larger things, right? He who is faithful with few will be faithful with much. At some point, on a basic level of kindness, we start stop serving others and we stopped showing common courtesy because of one basic sinful characteristic. Entitlement. Why say thank you when you open the door for me when you should have? I deserve that. I need to get where I'm going. And even though I made this mistake and I'm in the wrong lane and I need to get on the freeway right there. So you are supposed to stop and let me in. You should have done that. It's entitlement. We don't say thank you anymore because on some level we just think we deserve that. This is a problem, especially when it comes into the church. Because the more we think we deserve, the less compassionate we will be. You hear it all the time. Hey, man, we, you know, we're, I'm trying to get some people from the church together because I don't know if you heard, but this person is, is really, really struggling. And, and I think it'd be helpful if we all got together and maybe just help them out on a Sunday morning. What about me? He needs help. I'm doing this, too. Mine's big, too. I have a lot to move, too. We had a baby, too. You've heard that. And let's be honest, we're tempted to say that as well. Why am I going to sacrifice? I, I need help. I'm pressed for time. I'm stressed. I don't have enough money. I don't all this stuff, right? And so the less, the, the less we think about others and the more we think about what we need or what we want or what we don't have, which frankly you probably have but just don't have enough to satisfy your needs, the less compassionate we will be because we're so focused on ourselves. It's this air of entitlement that is frankly promoted, encouraged, and praised in our society now. But Jesus says, no, no, be kind-hearted. Not to yourself only, but to others. And this leads us to our fifth attribute. We're still in the, the first big point of our outline. But the fifth in the first point, he says, humble in spirit. And we've talked about this already. You can't have any of these first four if you don't exhibit humility. As it is today in our culture, in the Greco-Roman world, who were the first recipients of this letter we're writing, this was written about 2,000 years ago to people living under the Roman Empire. So just as, as it is today, back then, humility was scorned by society. And you may think, what do you mean like it is today? I don't, I don't really think that humility is scorned in our world today. I have, I have people who, who accept the blame or show humility at work and they're praised by the bosses. Okay. Maybe humility isn't looked down upon in our society today, but biblical humility is. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. And this is the biblical definition of true humility. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. He writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another not as equal, but as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, don't neglect your health to serve others. But you need to consider other people as more important 
than yourself. That is what I believe society does not encourage because they encourage self-entitlement. They encourage self-promotion. They encourage brag about where you went to school, how much money you made. And again, we're talking about a hard attitude when we talk about biblical humility, because true humility does not mean you have an unrealistic concept of your gifts and your abilities and what you have accomplished in life. Right. Humility is not, oh, I'm so dumb. I do nothing right when you actually do everything right. Right. It's not it's not that false sense of humility. Because Philippians goes on, the verse, the passage we just read goes on to explain how Jesus was the perfect example of humility that what we must emulate. And he never said, oh, I'm not great. I'm not all powerful. I'm not God. He accepted. He knew how powerful and great he is and was. But true humility Biblical humility is a conscious recognition of your position as God's creature before a holy and awesome creator, meaning you are fully dependent on him. And this is how the Christian truly lives with humility of mind. I am a good preacher. You have told me so. But because of God. You got straight A's, but because of God. You make a million dollars a year, but because of God. You're a good engineer. You're the best teacher. You won this award. You won that certificate. You have all these diplomas on your wall, but because of God. It's not saying, oh, you graduated from Harvard. No, no, I need to be humble. Don't lie. You graduated from Harvard, summa cum laude. That's a fact. You did that. Humility doesn't mean you deny that. Humility means you recognize God does everything in your life that you can take credit for. And so we must treat one another with humility of mind to be humble in spirit. And so that's the consuming character. The first truth to embrace To have your best life now. To maximize your life on earth. And you see, it is quite different than what a prosperity gospel preacher would tell you. But let me give you a second one. We've seen the consuming character. Secondly, the righteous response. The righteous response. And here we get into how Christians are to respond to unbelievers especially those who harm them. First Peter three, nine, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you are called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. While verse eight again was speaking of our attitude towards other Christians that would also apply to non-Christians, Peter moves on here to speak of our attitude toward non-Christians, though unfortunately it may be the case that it's towards other Christians as well if they harm you or insult you. And remember what we've seen thus far in First Peter, if you're joining us just recently or just this morning, we've looked at, he's been telling his original audience in the Roman Empire, first he said, if, you're, if you are a slave... And your slave owner beats you for doing something good, you need to submit to them. If your husband abuses you for becoming a Christian, which was acceptable back then, you must submit to him and be an example of gentleness and perhaps through your gentle and quiet spirit win him over to Christ. And in the midst of the emperor Nero, who was their emperor during that time, burning Christians alive, being the first individual in the history of the world to persecute Christians as a group, submit to government, he says. And the same idea is found here as we model the humility, the love and the dignity of Jesus. When people attack you, Do not attack in return. Now, again, this does not mean you just sit there and take the abuse when you have options to run or flee or to get out, to go to human resources or to call the police or to just walk out the door. That's not he's not saying just take suffering and more suffering for suffering's sake. He doesn't say seek suffering. 
But in this context, in verse 9, he says basically what he's been saying all along. Vengeance is not yours to take. He says, do not return evil for evil. Evil is the is the inherent quality of being bad. So it's someone who's just an evil person. It's not just bad words or or once in a while bad actions. It is the characteristic of this individual attacking you. An insult is not just a petty, silly insult. This is abusive, railing, cursing, speaking evil against you. And what Peter is telling us to avoid is that which is natural to man when attacked, and that is vengeance, to attack back. In the Roman Empire, and you've got to understand that what Peter is saying is not just contrary to human nature, this was totally against society for them. In the Roman Empire, it was expected that if someone harmed you, that you take revenge on them privately. In fact, the community and the government relied on it. You need to do this. Eye for an eye. They killed your son. You need to go kill them. We're busy. We're a big empire to run here. Take matters into your own hands. It was totally acceptable. But here Peter says for the Christian, no, no, it's not for you. You're different. You know better. It is forbidden. It would help us to go back and see the model that Jesus himself set for us. Just turn back a page or two. First Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. He says, you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. That's the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So Peter says, instead of vengeance, don't just do nothing. Don't just walk away. He goes on in verse 9 and says, you are to give a blessing. That's just repentance. Right? Repentance is that fancy word for, that we use as Christians to turn away from your sin. But it's not just turn away from something, it's turn to something. We are facing this way in our sin, and we do a full 180, turn away from our sin, and turn to God. It's not enough just to stop. We don't just put off. We must go the full 180 and put on. Put off sin, put on Jesus Christ. Put off sin, put on obedience. Put off slander, put on kind words and encouragement. Put off theft, put on get a job, and then use your money to buy things for other people. And it's the same idea here. When someone inflicts harm on you, evil, insult, you don't just stop and keep your mouth shut. You must go the full 180 and give a blessing in return. I mean, you get this. If for whatever reason you put it in the wrong coordinates in, in Google Maps or Apple Maps and you realize you're heading, you want to go to San Jose, but you're on the 101 North, it doesn't help to get on the Bay Bridge and go east. You have to make a complete 180. But what is a blessing? In secular Greek at the time, this meant to speak good of a person. In the Bible, for Christians, this is something that's more than words, but something that truly brings good to the person. Such as, well, Matthew 5.44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You understand when Jesus says this, he doesn't just say, don't hate your enemies. He says, love. What do you do for those who love you? You pray for them, you give to them, you hug them, you encourage them. So blessing could be all of those. It could be loving them, praying for their salvation, forgiving them definitely, helping them dig deeper. Hey, why are you like this? Can I help you? Do you need rehab? Do you need help? Are you lonely? Do you need to see a therapist? Whatever it may be, 
right? Help them. And the motivation for such behavior is that at the end of verse 9, we have been blessed by God. And it's way more than giving someone a buck or helping them get through the day. Peter ends verse 9 with, For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. And when we talk about inheriting a blessing, we understand he's talking about our salvation. This blessing that Christ has given us is our salvation. The forgiveness of sins and an eternity in heaven with God forever. And the key in my definition is that our inheritance is unmerited. It is an unmerited blessing. Why? You know what an inheritance is. Usually someone passes away, they leave you something. It's not pay, it's not salary. It's the same thing with the Greek word inheritance that Peter uses here. It refers to goods received simply because of who you are, that person's grandson or whatever it is, in our case, a Christian, and the generosity of the giver. It is not something that has been earned. You did nothing. It's simply because of who you happen to be that you receive this inheritance. And we understand that's the case with salvation. It's not because we're good. It's not because of our ethnicity. It's not because of our family. And it's definitely not because of our works. It's all grace. And with this immense blessing at the core of our lives, we are to pass it on to others even if not especially those who harm us with evil and insults. To put it as a rhetorical question, Christian, since you have been called to such holiness and forgiveness, can you not do the same to others, even your enemies? And might I remind you, you were once enemies of God, pouring upon him evil pouring upon him insult, if not actively, by your very very lives of disobedience. The Puritan William Lincoln wrote this. I'm going to quote him. And if you would give me the liberty, I'm going to quote his examples backwards for, frankly, dramatic effect. He says, To return evil for good is devil-like. To return evil for evil is beast-like. To return good for good is man-like. To return good for evil is God-like. And that's exactly what we have called, been called to be. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seeks after that which is good for one another and for all people. And again, good as defined by God. Well, back to Joel Osteen. In his book, he writes this, and I quote, and picture this, right? You guys have seen this guy, 30,000 people or whatever, private jets, mansions, million-dollar smile. I am what I am today because of what I believed about myself yesterday, right? Believe it and you can achieve it, I believe I've heard someone say before. And I will be tomorrow what I'm believing about myself right now. And his idea is if you picture yourself as the CEO, you will be the CEO. If you picture yourself not having to fly with the, with the lowly people on commercial and have your private jet, visualize it and you can have it. I am what I am today because of what I believed about myself yesterday and I will be tomorrow what I'm believing about myself right now. Now what he says next is total blasphemy, so I'm not even going to quote it. But... Taken wildly out of context, I agree with this statement. Because like me, you, Christian, are what you are today because of what you believed about yourself yesterday, a sinner saved by grace. And you will be tomorrow what you are believing about yourself right now, a sinner saved by grace. In fact, later, Osteen gives us more words of wisdom, as long as we violently rip them out of context again. 
He says, we need to see ourselves through the eyes of our creator. I agree with that. As sinners saved by his grace. Whereas Osteen is concerned with maximizing your happiness and comfort. Though I desire as your friend and pastor for you to be happy and comfortable. If it means that you are unhappy and very uncomfortable through trials. But that makes you more Christ-like as the scriptures promise and intend. Then I will rejoice with you while I weep with you. Because I'm concerned with what God is concerned about, maximizing your joy and your holiness. And you do this by embracing the consuming character of the Christian and by having the righteous response to those who do evil towards you. In two weeks, we'll finish this passage. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Uh, for the, the patience with those that you've given us as it is warm in here. Thank you that we do not end here. We continue praise you through fellowship and song and just the amazing privilege of being part of uh, baptisms of the individuals we heard from earlier. Father, we live in a world that is so desperately trying to conform us into its mold of self-entitlement, of seeking riches and fame and prosperity to the degree that they have amassed for themselves ear ticklers, false teachers calling themselves pastors who will tell them these truths and lie to them, telling them that you desire this as well. But thank you, Father, that there's no mental gymnastics we need to do here or literary gymnastics. Your word is very clear of what you want for us, that you give us more than happiness. You give us joy. You give us something better than comfort. You give us holiness. You give us something much better than fancy cars and mansions that will one day be left on this earth. You give us mansions in glory. And so, Father, may we keep our focus on who we really are and the reason, our Savior, for that. For those who may be visiting who don't know you, I just pray that you would help them to understand that as noble as these things are, they are humanly impossible for them without the Holy Spirit. This is a joy and a privilege only for those who know you because we're empowered by your spirit. May you work in them to draw them to yourself, to remove the blinders from their eyes that they may accept you as Lord and Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.